This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Trek, and you're listening to Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. My golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Ken Tripp. I'm Haley Stoddart. Zach, uh, he's off filming the Green Berets too. So I'm here to uh, discuss the original cast's most, I would say, famous movie among Trekkies, especially, but they critically acclaimed Star Trek for The Voyage Home. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for being here again. This is twice in three or four weeks. Yeah. So that's good. You know, it gives me a break from Zach. I've had him like three or four weeks in a row. But. <laughs> You know, what's, what's nice about doing this show is this this movie is referred to by many non or kind of quasi Star Trek fans as, oh, the one with the whales. You know, and it did. It had the most universal appeal prior to the J.J. movies being launched in 2009. Yeah, yeah, the one with the whales. The one yeah. with the whales. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, some fun facts about this. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes gave this a 85%. It earned $109 million in 1986. Um, so that would be about $258 million today, making it the third highest domestic box office uh, behind Star Trek 2009, which happens to be my favorite, oh, and Star Trek The Motion Picture. Which happens to be my favorite. <laughs> Isn't that funny? So it, it's, it's interesting. One, I'm impressed that you did that math off the top of your head and that you could figure out the difference between 86 and 2018 so quickly. <laughs> that's that's awesome. But secondly, uh, you're right. It, it did have a lot of appeal. It had a very high score. It did all those things. And really, you know, I think 2009 had a lot of broad appeal because we hadn't seen Star Trek for a while. It was JJ's take on it. It was kind of Star Warsy, And then, of course, a lot of people got into it. And then for Star Trek, the motion picture, which is, you know, now I feel like I need to be getting in my rocking chair again and talking about <laughs> the good old days. But uh, you know, when that came out in 79, we hadn't had Star Trek for 11 years other than mm -hmm. the animated series. So that was the, the big return. And this just just took off. So the, the success of Star Trek IV, right, mm -hmm. back in the day, it really was a catalyst uh, for Paramount to go ahead and say, OK, we're going to launch a new TV series. And I believe you are a TNG mega fan. I, I yeah. am. I Me was five when it started, so I didn't watch it immediately at that point. But yeah. Yeah, so you know what I'm saying. So yeah, it was, it was huge. I'm a big TNG fan. Uh, I was having a good time on Facebook with TNG people this week. But anyway, um, <laughs> it, it, it really, like, I, I remember that, that timeline because everything was just hitting its stride. If you were a Star Trek fan, the conventions were huge. Uh, there was a lot of, um, you know, because the, the show, the, well, the I'm sorry, Star Trek Four was the 20th anniversary of Star mm -hmm. Trek back then. And to think we're doing the 25th anniversary of DS9 right now. I know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, see? And the 30th for TNG last year, yeah, it all goes yeah. my mind. Okay, so, you know, I'm not the only old one on the show. I'm just no. much older. <laughs> yes, you are. There we go. You don't have to be so fast with that. Anyway, uh... <laughs> Well, one thing about this movie, though, it was at the time, right, it was purposely light, but it carried, I thought, a pretty great message, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. But but first, Haley, you know, when, when did you watch the movie? Okay, so I 
don't recall watching it when I was growing up, so yeah, um, I might have, um, but technically watched it two nights ago. Two nights so, ago? Yeah. Okay. And your first impressions? You know, I enjoyed it. I love, I think my favorite thing about it was not only the humor, which a lot of people enjoy, but the music for me. Um, I really enjoyed the lightness to it. It wasn't, it was adventurous and fun and upbeat, but it wasn't dark like a lot of the music in all the other films can be. Hmm, that's, a, that's an interesting observation. Now, it's funny you say that, and I did not prompt her to, but <laughs> the one and only episode I did with Brandon on melodic tracks was on the score of Star Trek IV mm -hmm. you know, by Landon Rosenman, and it was a very different score. And uh, yeah. we listened to a lot of his different tracks on that. And this, I believe it was nominated for an Academy Award. It didn't win, but it did. It had a really upbeat, um, very different sound to it. Plus a science fiction motif in there as well. Yeah, a little bit. Um, so I was in band all throughout middle school and high school, and I played the piano before I was in band. And mm -hmm. so uh, a lot of the time, the scores for me are really huge. And I enjoy listening to the music. And I'm one of those where if I have the music and I download it in my iTunes, I'll be listening to it in my car and I can see the picture and I can see the certain points in my mind in the movie. So the music for me can be a really big thing. It can be a turn off or a turn on for a film. Yeah, well, it's great that you have that kind of ear. I've, I've always loved uh, the music and have a ton of soundtracks myself. But what I always thought was interesting is, is the different eras. Like my, my kids... Uh, my, my oldest son is into music. He's quite the musician. Sounds a lot like you, actually, you know, piano, guitar. He's, he's just, he hears it. He knows that he plays it, you know, those types mm -hmm. of... I don't know where the heck he got it. I'm still looking for the, 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 the possible... Anyway, I don't want to go down that way. So anyway, he, he just has, he just has a, an unbelievable talent and a gift. But uh, when I was growing up, uh, you know, you, you saw the movie. It might come on TV two or three years later. Mm -hmm. um, VHS wasn't that big until 1982, 83. And even then, you know, you, you were talking about renting movies and there was no instant access. So like you, I relived all the movies I watched through the soundtracks, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, could, could see it in my head. And, and just like you, um, it really, I think, got a, a decent ear and, and pay much more attention to it. Uh, and, and it's interesting that you said that again, you know, we didn't talk about that off mic and I find that to be really interesting. And, and I find people that, that have that ability and that appreciation for the music, um, to be, you know, that much more interesting to me because it's, it's, it's a common point. And that's why I, I really enjoyed melodic tracks. I mean, that was a, yeah. a great show and, you know, it was, it was it was a lot of fun to kind of go back and see and listen to all the different tracks and um, follow the different composers. And it's amazing in the Star Trek world how many people are like that. Yeah. Well, and, you know, so I went to, they had that Voyage, uh, the 50th Voyage concert that toured mm -hmm. around. And my best friend and I went down to Salt Lake for that because that was the closest that it came. And just absolutely mu moving. I love it. Like, I went to the concert in Vegas several years mm -hmm. ago when I went and I'm sitting there crying, you know, and it moves me very deeply, but I, I appreciate that because of all those years of being in band and appreciating music and learning to appreciate it. So the, um, the beat of the music, I mean, it, like I said, it had a very, um, very upbeat kind of fun sound to it. Uh, you know, it was very, it, like, like you had mentioned, it wasn't as dark as mm -hmm. the others i i don't know how dark the movies were definitely dark star trek 2 and star trek 3 comparatively star trek the motion picture i would say was deep but they had these big bombastic scores yes right and now you've got this which um you know it just it just gets a feel to it and and it makes you smile especially the end credits i always thought that that was kind of neat with the pictures going along with it so that's that's cool we'll, we'll have to circle back to that so the music <laughs> right off the bat grabbed your attention and it, mm -hmm. and it made you feel pretty positive. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. So I, so did then the movie live up to the score type of thing? I, I would say so. I mean, it definitely did. There was a lot of, I liked the humor in it. It was a little 
sometimes on the nose, but also pretty subtle. And I enjoy British humor, so mm-hmm. I like the little drier sometimes, but definitely that subtle humor where it's funny, but it's not ha ha funny. It's just like, oh, that's really like chuckle funny right, for me. Right. Yeah, I, I gotcha. <laughs> so that was it. Definitely lived up to it. I think for me. Yeah, I, I I hear you. I think that was what the appeal was because um, when they were making this movie. And Leonard Nimoy uh, was putting it all together because he, he directed Star Trek Three, And he, he kind of had said in a lot of interviews that the first three movies, especially the second two, was a lot of death, a lot of destruction. I mean, we lost Kirk's son. We lost Spock. We lost the Enterprise. It's just heavy, right? And he wanted to do something a little bit lighter. And as we mentioned when we were talking about you and your rewatch or your first watch of the original series, that... There was a lot of great comedy, you know, mm-hmm. and, the, and these guys could pull it off. And they always seemed to work best in that fish out of water scenario, like they did in a piece of the action. Right? Yeah. They weren't technically trying to be funny. They were just funny because they didn't they, they were trying to pull something off. And that, that's a lot, I think, of why Star Trek IV works so well. It wasn't slapsticky. It was just, you know, these these different things and circumstances and. You know, Spock jumping in and doing a mind meld with a whale. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was that was funny. I think that was funnier the second time that I watched it. So I watched it once just to watch it, and then I watched it again and jotted down different things. So the second time I saw that, I was like, "Yeah, that's actually <laughs> like Kirk's reaction," and he's sitting there like, "What are you doing? Why are you doing this?" <laughs> um, but Bones, I think Bones trying to. To talk to Spock and and get Spock to be Spock before mm-hmm. three was that was that was great. Yes, yes, that he would yeah. actually have to die <laughs> to have a common point of reference. Yes, I thought <laughs> that that was that was pretty good. No, I I agree with you, Haley. I think that uh, they 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 pulled it off well. Uh, maybe some things were on the nose, but you know I. All in all, I think for for longtime Star Trek fans that really in you know at, at my age back then, which was twenty on the nose, nineteen eighty six, the um, the ability to see your the characters and I had met all these folks in numerous conventions because that was so big back then uh, to see them in a movie like this where other people for the first time could watch Star Trek, mm-hmm. not have to try to figure out. You know what's the thing with the pointed ears, and I, I don't Federation. What what's this? Sh- they don't get it, but yeah. this movie allowed them to sit there and just watch this tale of trying to to save the world, to save the whales in order to save the world, uh, and and watch these guys go, and just sit back and have a good time. And that was really, um, I think the the crux of the film. Right, it had universal appeal. The other piece of it that um, was was really cool was over time when you talk about like the best movies in Star Trek even though this was most successful among Star Trek fans it's very really brought up as being one of the best where I think it truly belongs up there yeah well and that was one thing you'd mentioned I appreciated that there wasn't so much techno babble in mm-hmm. it and I think that's why it makes it so appealing to people who aren't diehard fans or at least had watched plenty of the episodes and new nuances and things like that between the characters and and whatnot there wasn't all that techno babble which tng and later on is definitely (laughs) guilty of a lot of techno babble and you kind of have to start from the beginning or you don't get it and that was really nice actually it's kind of refreshing to not have all of that jargon in there (laughs) yeah well as 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 we both know as big TNG fans that uh when you have to do was it 26 episodes a year for 7 years and you're trying to fill space and time that's what they do right they start off talking about things that you know, all the pseudoscience things that make no sense and you just go oh okay yeah <laughs> of course the you know the matter flux inducer doesn't work dopey yeah whatever um so let's go a, a little bit and talk about the um the message from Star Trek Four. Now you had said the comedy could be a little bit um, on the nose or bonk bonk over the head. What was your feeling about the whole um, ecological message of this movie? As a Earth lover, mm-hmm. 
Uh, I definitely appreciate it. I think that it speaks to a lot of devastating effects, even that just one species no longer in existence can have on our planet. You know, we, we have this cycle of everything is connected, and I think a lot of times we tend to forget that everything, even down to the microscopic organism, all the way up to blue whale, which is the largest animal on our planet right now, is all connected. And we all have this cycle, and you take one out of the loop, or you add one into the loop that shouldn't be there, and it, the effects ripple out into everything. And so I appreciated that just because, you know, we need to take care of this planet. It's the only one we've got. And if we yeah. don't, then, you know, it's, effects are pretty devastating for all of us. It's, it's pretty well said, very well said. I think the, um, the piece of it that I liked was the fact that everybody was scrambling to try to figure out what this probe wanted, right? And for whatever reason, Spock figures it out, listening to it and... You know, makes it, you know, what would this sound underwater because it's aimed at the Earth's oceans? And they kind of walk into it. And that line that he said is, you know, only human arrogance would think that this must be made for man. Right. And I thought that was a um, kind of a critical thing to say because it, it, it was one of the first movies, it's probably the only movie I know of, where man may, may have caused it, but the probe didn't even act like people were there or that they mattered. It just wanted to talk to whales. And I thought that was kind of a nice twist on things, right? It's like, mm -hmm. wh who, why, why would you think that this message just had to be meant for man? It could be meant for anybody or anything, mm -hmm. you know, with a cer certain level of intelligence. Yeah. For me, it kind of brought up the whole, because um, we recently have watched, uh, I watched in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with my daughter. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was perfect. like, oh, this is kind of, the backwards motion of the whales are gone and this thing is coming and wants the whales to be there or we're all going to be gone. <laughs> anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> I haven't, I've read the books. I can't say I've actually seen the movie, but at any rate, uh, no, I, that's, that's what I thought was, was really cool about it. It was, it, it kind of flipped things on its ears a little bit and, you know, it made you think, and I think it, it helped um, to bring in, uh, Dr. Dr. Jillian Taylor, um, mm -hmm. uh, Catherine Hicks, I think, did a wonderful job portraying her, and and was very believable. Yeah, she was she was thoroughly enjoyable. I liked her uh, not taking no and pushing back, <laughs> and her. I loved when she was having dinner with Kirk, and you know, and and he's talking about some of the stuff, and she's like, oh. Oh, tell me. And you want to think that she believes him, but then you're like, oh, she's being such a smart aleck about it. And it's great. And I love that. I wish we could have seen more of her and Kurt together. Maybe that would have been great. Well, I, I think it ended beautifully because she blew him off. Yeah. Right. And he couldn't believe it. And that, <laughs> that was the other trope that this movie had a lot of fun with. And I, I think it showed a lot of... Um, development for William Shatner and his character a little bit because he always got the girl that was just the the way it worked right and uh, there was always a love interest and you know he's like you know as you say in your time I don't even have your phone number and she's like I'll find you and see you later off she goes right yeah. and I thought that was that was that was um that was just kind of neat it was just a, a different turn on things but I really enjoyed her a lot and when she slapped uh the um the aquarium curate that was very <laughs> real i don't know if you've ever seen or read any of the um uh the production notes or, or anything uh -uh. that they've in the making of or whatnot she didn't intend to hit him that hard but they said make it authentic <laughs> so everything the slap and the reaction was all real she gave him a real slap <laughs> she was really pissed <laughs> so i thought that was that was pretty interesting little trivia there, and it made it even that much more believable. Yeah, yeah. I th that's one thing I think, like a, a woman slapping a man on the face, I don't think you can fake that and make it look genuine and authentic. You have to actually do it because you won't get that reaction from, like, a fake one. I don't know. All right, Haley, is that because you want to do it, or is that how you really feel? <laughs> no, it's how I felt. I've actually 
been a slapper. I've slapped a couple of people in the face and yeah, you don't get a reaction if you don't actually do it with feeling. <laughs> As we say in band, with feeling. <laughs> with feeling. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Note for a Las Vegas trip, don't piss Haley off. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> They'll know exactly. Why are you so red in the cheek? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Okay, so um, so we, we, we talked a little bit about the message. We, we talked a, a bit about the comedy. What were your feelings about the, um, the whole kind of uh, B and C plots here? You had Mr. Scott and, and Dr. McCoy connected for kind of the first time off doing their mission, as well as, um, and Sula was along for the ride, but he kind of got, yeah. sort of, yeah. And then you had Chekhov and Uhura. What did, what did you think of those dynamics? I liked it. It was really fun. I loved Chekhov and Yohura trying yeah. to get to the naval base and asking the police officer. And I'm just like, you know, you do that now, you're going to get arrested. <laughs> and But then a friend of mine had mentioned, how did none of these people who went to Starfleet Academy know where Alameda is? So it'd still be there. It, yeah, right? I mean, well, San it would Francisco still be there. San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> so they had to have known where how to get there. And a friend mentioned that, and I go, ah, you're right, yeah. If they'd gone to Starfleet Academy for all these years, they should know how to get to Alameda. Well, you know, it's interesting. My wife was stationed at Alameda, and uh, the base is long since closed. So that'll be my my reason, is that the if the base was closed in the 1990s, by the time they came around, they, they probably didn't even know it was once a naval base. But uh, I'll throw that out there. But uh, interesting um, facts about that scene. I don't know if you know this or not, but when they were asking the police officer and he's just looking at him, that police officer was just there to help with traffic <laughs> and keep people away from the movie set. Oh, that's funny. And so when they were talking to him, his reaction is like, what, what are you talking to me for? And and who are you people? And the woman who actually answers the question was just a pedestrian who got through and walked through and stops and answers it. Oh my and gosh. they filmed it and they had to chase her down and sign her to a quick contract. Oh my God. I didn't know <laughs> so that. That's all of, great. <laughs> yeah, all of that was ad-libbed. Yeah. That whole scene. That's fantastic. Was, that's, that was pretty cool. Yeah. All of that was ad-libbed. And then of course you had, um, I thought was a pretty quaint scene was uh, McCoy and um, and Scotty at the um, at, at the factory there when they were mm -hmm. looking at the uh, the glass and the plastics and so forth and the polymers. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. I liked that. I thought that was great. I mean, I did find it odd that somehow, granted, yes, I get the whole Scotty talking to the computer computer. But then somehow he knows how to use the keyboard and he types faster probably than I could and knows all the programming, but didn't understand that he couldn't talk to the computer. <laughs> well, he tried to talk to the mouse. Well, he did try to talk to the mouse, but, <laughs> but then he like types and he's typing all fast and he opens like the programming and I'm like, really? That was kind of a little unbelievable for me, just a yeah, little okay. bit, but it was funny. I mean, I get it. A lot of people really like that scene. It's a definitely a GIF you see all the time, mm -hmm. so I get it. But yeah, I just thought that was a little weird. Yeah, and and <laughs> poor George Takai, they actually had a uh, a scene for him where do you remember when he's walking down and he looks and he sees the big um, yellow pages ad on the mm -hmm. side of the building? Well, there he was supposed to meet a little boy, and he talks to the little boy and he discovers that that little boy is his great 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 grandfather. And they did film it, but the kid was just awful and kept breaking down and crying or whatever. Aww. And so after so many takes, they just finally said, we, we surrender. So he didn't get his little um, his little scene. Because everybody had their little moment for the most mm -hmm. part. Or hers, not so much, you know, just just more or less with um, with Chekhov. But that was that was why his, his role seemed a little bit diminished compared to the others. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah, he kind of disappeared, and then he came back, and I'm like, wait, what? where has he been this whole time? <laughs> yeah, he was learning how to fly the Huey, right? So yeah. you have you have Scotty who could type, and you had uh, Sulu who could fly a helicopter. <laughs> yeah. Which is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, so Maybe. I think they're pretty much the same, I suppose. Going to suspend a little disbelief and have some fun with it. Well, yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's it's great. I thought it was really funny. I loved the, I think one of my favorites was Chekhov when he was being chased mm-hmm. off the ship. The music in that part was hilarious. I love that bit. But, um, but I thought that was great. And I thought, man, it would have been really funny if they had beamed him off before he fell. But then you wouldn't have everything else afterwards. But I thought that was kind of, I'm like, oh, that would be kind of funny. Because then he's gone, and then they're all like, wait, but, yeah, anyway. <laughs> well, come on, McCoy, McCoy in a 20th century hospital, you wouldn't want to lose that <laughs> that's scene. That's true, I, yeah. Right. And that's why I said, you know, everything that comes after with the hospital and stuff, that was that was great, so it's okay. Mm-hmm. And they had a similar chase with similar music through the uh, through the hospital as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, uh, which was pretty good. Yeah. And it, what's interesting, did you buy the soundtrack for Star Trek Four yet? I haven't yet, I, yeah. I have most of the 2009 soundtrack, but I don't have any of the other ones yet. Yeah, okay. Just a little bit. What you'll find interesting uh, is it ha- every single track has a very defined start and stop. So, you know, when you listen to movie soundtracks, a lot of time it just kind of fades away. Mm-hmm. Um, but for each scene, it, it's, it's like its own musical number, like its own song. So it's, it's kind of cool when you listen to Star Trek Force uh, because... It's almost like everything is perfectly blocked out with the music, and and you'll know exactly where they are and what they're doing as you're listening to it because it's just so locked into the movie. It's I think different. a lot of soundtracks, though. I think a lot of the earlier soundtracks, because I had soundtracks when I was first buying mm-hmm. CDs. I think they did that then, and now it's more of this fading in, fading out, fading into the next song. Kind of, it's more flows rather than mm-hmm. start and stop. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe that's true. I I'm so used to the movies. I had a lot of soundtracks, like I said, when I was a kid. And I guess you're right. I was trying to think to some of the bigger ones, like Jaws and Star Wars and all the other Star Trek ones that I enjoyed. And, and I guess you're right. Close Encounters. I, I had them all. <laughs> that's them okay. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like I said, it was different times, different times, but still great music. And um, and there's some great soundtracks today. There's no doubt. But I was just trying to think. Yeah, I think you're right. That that's why it's it stays so prominent with me because it was so different. And um, and and the uh, the composer was a good friend of of Leonard Nimoy's, and that's how he got the gig. So yeah. Yeah, I did a little looking on on him because I was wondering what else he had worked on. So and that was kind of neat. There was. I think there was a made-for-TV movie, and I was like, I remember watching that movie. So now I'm going to have to go back and listen to it. Well, he did some Planet of the Apes. Mm -hmm. He did one of them, which was funny because he kind of tag-teamed with Jerry Goldsmith, who did the original Planet of the Apes, and then like Leonard Rosenman followed him. But if you listen to melodic tracks, I I wish I could tell you the episode number, but there's not a ton of them where we talk about Star Trek IV. Um, Brandon plays them all the different tracks and it's really mm-hmm. fun including we had to put in there the trailer for it there's there was a terrible movie that came out in the mid 70s called the car and it literally was they took jaws and they just put it in a car and yeah. the car just drives around and runs over people and it has no driver it's just a possessed car bizarre it is the most bizarre movie somehow it can jump up and leap and get people in kitchens it's bizarre <laughs> It's bizarre. So we played that trailer in there too, and unfortunately for Leonard, that was one of his soundtracks. Oh <laughs> so, no! So that's where I was going with that one. Yeah, yeah. He did. Um, there was. Uh, it was the face on the milk carton, and it was a made-for-TV movie. I remember it. I probably haven't watched it since it was on, but I remember it, and I thought, oh, and he did the music for that, and I thought, huh, I remember watching that. <laughs> Is it like an after-school special? It sounds like one. Kind of. Th- it was, yeah. The, the Basically the story, you know, and they had the face on the milk cartons of kids that had gone missing. And it, the whole premise of this kid was kidnapped anyway. And um, years later, his face is still on the milk carton, and the kid sees it and was like, I think that's me. That looks like me. And discovers that, you know, this other family, so the family takes the kid back, and then obviously the kid's like, whoa, what is going on? Because I didn't grow up with you people, you're not my family. Anyway, yeah. I think it was like late 80s, early 90s, one of those movies. <laughs> one of Sounds those like movies. it's deserving of its own podcast to me. <laughs> no. No? no? That wasn't that good. No. <laughs> no. 
So let me ask you this. So at the end of the movie, spoilers, right? When yeah. um, when they do bring the whales back, which was kind of you know kind of neat, right? They they stop the the Russians from from harpooning the whale, and they beam them in. They get the whales back, and I always thought the effects were really really cool of the whales under the water, and when it when it turns and then the probe matches that, but you don't know what they're saying to each other. Was that something that you thought was kind of cool and mysterious, or were you looking for some subtitles? Yes, it was really neat. I thought that was kind of, you know. But then at the end, I was like, I wanted a little more answer, even if I didn't know exactly everything that happened, everything that was said between the probe and the whale, at -hmm. least a little something. I kind of felt like it ended, and then it just, and then you're like, but... Wait, what? Yeah, I wanted a little bit more. Okay. What about fair. you? <laughs> well, you know, when I when I saw the movie, I did at the time. Uh, but then, you know, I, I listened to Nicholas Meyer and others just from, from different shows, and they, they talked about um, allowing certain parts of your imagination to be part of the story. And, you know, it was kind of a growth thing for me. And then, so I kind of looked at it through that lens, and I said, well, what do you think they're saying? It's kind of like with mm-hmm. the, um, the, the glove on Khan. They never explain why he wears it, and he doesn't know himself. And his question is, well, why do you think he wears it, right? Because they, they like to flip things on you. So it gives you some, you know, it, it allows you to have a little bit of, of freedom of, I guess, you know, what do you think they could have said, and it allows for some debate because it isn't cut and dry. So I thought that was kind of neat. Now, if you buy the novel, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure if I, I have spent a long time, I do have it up there on my bookshelf. Uh, I'll have to go look. But I'm pretty sure in the novel, it does say what was spoken between them. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm too logical, rational brained. I, I, yeah, I want to know. <laughs> you want to know? I'm not, right. I'm not a major uh, imagination, make it up myself. Like I probably could, but at the same time, I'm like, nah. My brain's not thinking that way. I don't so, think that way. So, you know, that's interesting because you're a musician. Yes. And yet you're very logical. Yeah. So do <laughs> you do you play the notes as you see them, or are you able to also get creative with your music and, and, and just go on your own? I would, when I was playing, I haven't played in years. Um, mm-hmm. I played the notes as I saw them. I think I put emotion into when I played Mm -hmm. and sometimes depending on whatever piece we were playing I could put myself into the music you always do but I played the notes as I saw them I see it's just just interesting to me because um, by and large I don't feel that I'm a very creative person but as time has gone on I've had more and more feedback like you're because I use a lot of tools in order to problem solve right we you, you there's certain ways to get at root cause analysis. There's certain ways that you organize uh, structures and, 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 and make sure that everything kind of flows. And I like things to be somewhat linear and not too web of command-y. That's just my style. So, you know, it's very da-da-da-da-da. But I, I don't know if I've always been, like you said, you're logical. Um, and, and so when people that are, that are musicians, I always assume are, are extraordinarily creative. And, and, and have a different view of the world. And, and I, I usually am very envious of those folks because <laughs> a lot of times they can problem solve and do things as well as people like me who are very tool usage and very formulaic. Uh, it just, it, sometimes it takes them a little longer to get there or they get there and I can't figure out how the hell they got here. <laughs> I'm, I sit there and I go, this makes no sense, but they do it. So that's where I was kind of going with that because... Um, because I don't feel I am creative when I can have some license to kind of think about it. Uh, I, I enjoy it. So mm-hmm. I've just gone full circle back to that scene. And that's why, you know, it, it didn't bother me too, too much. And there've been other movies since, right? Like um, there's been a lot of talk about Tarantino lately, you know, what, what's in the case in Pulp Fiction, right? Nobody knows mm-hmm. or Ronin or any of those movies. Like they don't tell you what they're chasing or trying to get at. Now, there's a part of me where that drives me crazy. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. So I understand what you're saying. But then there's other parts of me. It's like, yeah, you, 
there's been so many discussions about what could be in that case. If the movie is done right, it creates more interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it creates a talking point, and everybody can have their their idea about it and and whatnot. And I'm not saying I have to know, but just even knowing just like a little bit more of like, or at least an idea of what the whole thing was about would be good for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, there is an answer, and I can get it for you. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we can solve that great mystery. If you must know, you will be told. So uh, what, I might, what I'll do is um, uh, I'll go find the book. It's, it's not very long. I'll probably put it in the show notes so other folks can, can get at it and, uh, and share that, that great information of what the conversation was <laughs> between the whale and the probe. Yes. <laughs> great. All right. So um, what did you think, you know, after watching Star Trek four, and I know it's, it's been a while since you've seen Star Trek three, but you've been catching up on the original series. You've seen Star Trek two. Um, did you think at the end when they had the court martial, um, well, I won't ask you what you think. I'll just ask you what your thoughts were with um, the team coming together and the punishment quote unquote that they've gave Kirk and so forth and so on. What was your, what were your thoughts there? It's not surprising, given how much the crew's gone together, that they would all stand together, or that Spock would stand with them. Uh, you know, when the president is saying to him, why are you here? And, you know, I'm here with my crew. You know, I'm part of this crew and part of the problem. Um, that wasn't surprising at all. I was a little surprised um, that they got rid of everything, even though they demoted Kirk. They got rid of all the charges except for one. That was, mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't surprising. Like, you'd expect that to happen just because we do get another film. So, um, but I enjoyed that a lot. And I never had noticed before that, because, you know, we go to Vegas, or I've gone to Vegas numerous times, you've been, uh, they have that monster maroon group. And mm-hmm. I don't know. People can correct me if I'm wrong, but I swear everybody has the white collars and the white shoulder strap. I've never Mm -hmm. seen anybody have the green or the blue or the orange or it looks orange to me, at least on my TV it did. And I thought that was, I liked that division because I don't think I'd ever picked up on that before. And that was, in that scene particularly, that was the thing that I enjoyed the most was, oh, I'd never noticed those color divisions. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they um, they've been consistent when they came up with the monster maroons, but white was simply command. So if you were a captain or an admiral, mm-hmm. you you had you had the white, kind of like in um, uh, the the later TNG movies. You know when they had their dress uniforms, Picard yeah. had the white, and the others had the different colors that kind of went well. They were all blue, right? They didn't vary. <laughs> It was either blue or it was white, I think. And I'm, I'm the colorblind one, so I'm, I'm taking a, a guess on that. But you're right. I don't think I've noticed anybody walk around in, in different colors. I guess everybody considers themselves to be a captain or an admiral. Because it's what it is. <laughs> yes. 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 Maybe maybe us Trekkie guys have a, have a big ego, right? And we, <laughs> if we were going to be in the show, then, you know, it, it'd be obvious to me they'd cast me as an admiral, wouldn't you think? I I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Either that or, um, you know, crewman third class swabbing the deck one way or the other. Yeah, I agree with you. I thought the um, the scene played very, very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, I think it was bookended beautifully. You had the front end scene with the Klingon going ballistic and passionate. John Shuck played a hell of a Klingon, you know, as the ambassador in the front end. And then at the back end, uh, when when it all comes together and... Uh, you know, it's probably, I don't know, what, the 15th time they've saved the Earth or the galaxy or whatever, <laughs> that that the punishment definitely fit the crime. And now, you you know, you have them going off and off into the ship. So I thought I thought it was played very well. I think they, they closed it off and they allowed the movie, the next movie, to take off and not be connected in any way. Now, it didn't execute, but that's too bad. But at least then... You know, it's kind of like, okay, here's the end of this little trilogy. We've got it set. These guys are all set for another adventure. Yeah. Little did they know that, that TNG was around the corner and uh, was was going to, to be the powerhouse that it was. And kind of, I wouldn't say it hurt the original cast. 
because Star Trek Five on its own was just wasn't that great a movie. Star Trek Six was great, but it just was one of those things where it was like, okay, now we're going to get a lot of Star Trek. Yeah, I I can say I don't. Yeah, I've never seen Five. That's okay if you want to skip it. Um, <laughs> actually, it, you know, it's it's funny. There are people out there uh, that. Uh, see Star Trek V like one of the original episodes. They say it's one of the most Star Trek TV-like episodes of the movies because of the chemistry amongst the group. But it has it, it's a rough script, and um, it, it really changes. But like I said, there are people out there, John Mills is one of them, absolutely loves the movie, passionate about it. So you just never know. You, you know, it might, it might click with you. And um, Yeah, I'm, I'm a firm believer in... You have to see it all. Mm -hmm. So, like, I, I watched uh, Deep Space Nine. And before I started, I had a friend that offered to give me a list of episodes to watch that would give me a gist of Deep Space Nine. And I said, no, I'm going to watch it all, the good, the bad, because mm -hmm. I might like something that somebody else doesn't. And other people like might like something that I don't. And that's okay. But, yeah, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in watching it all. Mm -hmm. Well, so we'll get to it. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure you will. And I, I wouldn't say it's the worst Star Trek movie. I would not no. say that. There are no. others that are much worse. Yeah. But it's um, it's it's definitely um, it's it's execution's a little rough. But it 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 means well. And for me, being a um, and now I am a 100% holistic Star Trek fan, so I like it all. Uh, but obviously, this is a show about the original series. It's it's my people. It's what I grew up mm -hmm. with. So anytime that that cast got together, I was always happy. And Star Trek VI was a, a great movie. And I still to this day am just like, oh, you know, it's like it's, it's like anything big when it ends, it just kind of crushes your heart a little bit. But, you know, we move on. Yes. Right? <laughs> All good <laughs> things. I've heard that before. <laughs> All right. So, Haley, give me your, your final thoughts overall on this movie. Overall, I enjoyed it. It was really fun. It was a lighthearted kind of escape from what Trek normally is. It had the Trek, but not deep Trek. So it was great. It was enjoyable. Definitely a lot of fun. I'll watch it with my daughter. She'll watch it soon because she didn't get to watch it and she's kind of mad at me. Uh-oh. Mom's in trouble. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> well, that's okay. That's okay. Well, at least, you know, it'll be interesting to get to get um, her perspective of it because kids seem to really like this movie because they can relate to it. Yeah. Well, and like I said, this, she likes TOS more than TNG, and we watched TNG last year, so, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like my kind of kid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I like it. She's got taste. Now, I'm just kidding, all you TNG people. <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 I do love all of it. Um, TNG is definitely my second favorite, so it's up there. And DS9, I love that too. So Yeah, it was a good one. Yeah. yeah. Did you notice when you first did your rewatch of DS9? Especially I actually the watched first... it for the first time. So oh, you did? It okay, wasn't so... a rewatch. It was like a first watch. <laughs> but you watched them all in succession. So you must have yeah. watched sometimes two or three episodes in a day, if not more. Uh, sometimes I have to go back sometimes. and watch season one through three because I was finishing school and I don't have much memory of those at all. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just, I, I did the whole watch thing with my daughter. It became a real father-daughter thing about, oh, eight or nine years ago. Um, and it was wonderful because she wasn't really into Star Trek. Now she is. I, you, you, I think you saw her in Star Trek, uh, in Las Vegas. And, um, one of the things I noticed about watching the first couple of seasons is how many times it starts with a Dabo table and that clicking noise. Mm -hmm. And so after a while, I was like, I would mute it for the first 30 seconds just because that's, that sound got so annoying if you had to, <laughs> if you kept watching them in succession. But Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. So welcome to the Standard Orbit Tangents. We've had a couple of them here today. <laughs> yes. All right, so your final thoughts were a good movie. Um how would you how would you rate it against the other TOS movies that you've seen so far? Is this the best one? No, at no. least not for me. I, okay. It's been so long since I've watched so many of them that I, in order to rate them all, I would have to watch them all again. Mm -hmm. Um, I, 
I put this probably somewhere in the middle for me. It's close mm-hmm. to the top, but it's it's not my favorite. No, I understand. I, and again, that's where it seems to fall with, with Trek fans. Isn't that funny? Like I said before, it was the most successful because it had the most mm-hmm. appeal. But then you ask Star Trek fans, oh, Star Trek 2 and Star Trek 6 and for the, from the TOS stuff. That's all mm-hmm. I'm talking about. You know, they'll say those, those are the top two. And, well, Zach loves Star Trek 3. I like the motion picture. So I get it. You know, I think that's um, that's pretty common. But, yeah, I would say it's probably my third favorite out of the six or so. It's it's right there in the middle. I think you, yeah. you captured it well. You know, it's also nice if you just kind of want to relax, you know. Uh, and not you, have you are to sp- focus on anything or really think about what's going on. Yeah, you can really just kind of sit back and smile and enjoy the music, and it's, yeah, I'm with you on that. Okay. All right, Haley, so where can people find you on the interwebs? People can find me on Twitter. I'm the handle Trekkie01D. Hmm, I wonder what that means. I have no idea. Hmm, okay. (laughs) If any of you guys could help me on the Babel Conference, never mind. Okay. And you're on the Babel Conference as well? Are you responding there Um, time to time? Time to time, a little bit. Um, If you want me to see something, it's usually best to tag me in it because there's too much. I have too many groups on Facebook that I might not see it if you don't. Well, you'll be part of the show tag for this one for sure. So uh, if people have any comments or questions or their own thoughts on this, of course, we always welcome on the Babel Conference. And you know, once again, I, I really enjoyed uh, sitting down and, and having a nice conversation with you and getting caught up. It's it's been it's been really enjoyable for me, and it, it adds a different view of things. So so thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yep, I hope you'll come back soon, and um, we'll continue our journey through TOS with you and maybe Chloe as time moves on. Yes. So. Gotta <laughs> start season be- three. Season season three and movies five, six, and se- no, yeah, five and six, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I think we have to. We we need to watch three because we recently okay. watched two, and then she'll need to watch four because she didn't watch it with me. So yeah. Okay, all right. Doesn't sound very logical to me, Haley. Going out of order, <laughs> but I know. No. <laughs> <laughs> all right. There Be Whales Here isn't the only thing we're discussing on Trek FM this week, so here are some clips from other shows across the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. I actually hadn't watched the show, I'm embarrassed to say, um, but I sat down and I started watching uh, and recording episodes, and I immediately had an idea for a script uh, because I found Data to be the most interesting character. To the journey! So you could have, like, you know... Carbonated gog. Carbonated gog. <laughs> I'm trying to understand how this works. So the gawk are presumably a little squishy or juicy on the inside. So you're saying that in order to give them the appearance of life, they replicate it with carbonation inside the gawk. Yes, to make them like pop wow. and fizz. Kind of like an Alka-Seltzer, you know? Like pop, pop, pop and fizz. Candy gawk. Warp 5. And I go into the job interview, and I'm just parroting back to him things he said in his interviews. But he didn't know that I was just doing that. I would say, the thing about Star Trek is that you could write a, it's a mystery one week, it's a Western the next week. And I'm literally, literally, word for word, things he said in an interview. So that's how I always feel. And I joke with him now that that's how I got the job. But the 602 Club. When we're talking about the idea of context in history, I think this is the biggest issue that I see in this film. Um, and, and with the, the Force Awakens, too. And you put them together because they're going to make a trilogy. Is look, writing 101, if you don't know the past and the future of your characters, you absolutely 100% cannot write their present. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on Trek FM contact. 
and look in the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm, and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, and of course in the Babel Conference. Type Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at trekfm and click discussion on the menu bar. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron on the network on Patreon. If you visit Patreon slash TrekFM, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash TrekFM, you'll find the current goals and different milestone contributions along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details on patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our great associate producers for Standard Orbit. We have Renee Roberts, Norman Lau, Aaron Harvey, Tim Robertson, Nick Anastasio, Richard Marquez, and Corey Elrod. Yes, thank you guys so much for your support for both Standard Orbit and Trek FM. Uh, so, Ken, if people want to find you out there on the Internet, where can they find you? Hey, you can find me hanging around the Babel Conference and engaging people when I, when I have the opportunity. You can also find me on Twitter. My uh, Twitter handle is at BostonSCPO, and we, uh, we like to tweet out all our new episode information as soon as we get it, as well as, well as our colleagues. So look for me there. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach. That's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. And I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Hold On to Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that Young Superman series from the early 2000s. And you can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. <laughs>